Good morning, I am Brian Burris. Everybody say, hey, Brian. Awesome, I always love being greeted. So with Pastor Van out of town attending to family things, I get the honor and privilege of preaching today. And this morning may be a little bit different than you're used to. In fact, it will be. Um, it's not the type of sermon that I usually preach. It's really not the type Van does. Uh, I'm going to be preaching not just from one passage, but from several passages. I have decided to tackle some of the most out-of-context verses in Scripture. And this could easily have been a months-long series. But I will hit just a few, some of the big boys, the major leaders, um, this morning. I didn't have a title in time for the bulletin, but if I did, it would be too long anyway. It would probably be a paraphrase of Inigo Montoya from the cinematic masterpiece, The Princess Bride. You keep using that verse, I do not think it means what you think it means. Or I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, or straight out of context. Write down any of those, use whatever you like. Now, we are all probably guilty of using verses out of context. We like how they make us feel. We like how it seems to fit a situation. We like that it's witty or clever, whatever. The problem is that God's word means what God's word means. It doesn't really matter how it makes us feel. God gave us his word for one purpose, to reveal himself to us and show us the plan of redemption that was in place from before there was time. And when we rip something out of its original context, we are abusing his word. Remember that the Bible wasn't written to us. It was written for us. If it means something now that it didn't mean to the original audience, then the current meaning is wrong. God's word doesn't change, no matter how much people around us would like it to. I remember seeing a picture one time that showed the danger of taking verses out of context. Maybe you've seen those desk calendars with inspirational sayings or pictures on them. This one showed a flowery background with the words, I will give it all to you if you will kneel down and worship me, Matthew 4, 9. That's so nice and inspirational until you realize where it's from. That's from the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and it's Satan who said it. The point is that we need to be very careful when we're dealing with individual verses. Part of the problem, I think, is that the chapter and verse designations in our Bible have given us the idea that these are separate thoughts, when in fact each book is a unified book or letter. The divisions came much, much later. The writings were never meant to be pulled apart. They make up a larger theme that's found in the proper context. Now some of these are probably going to be obvious, others may be less so, and I hope I don't hurt any feelings. The, po the point of this is not for us to go out of here and whenever you hear this now go, that's not what that means, at least with most people. Some people deserve that. But like I said, we are all probably guilty of misuse of God's word, even with the best of intentions. And I'm not saying there's never a time for individual verses to be used. We just need to make sure that the text is correct and that it really does mean what we think it means. Now, there's no way I'm going to be able to get deep into the weeds in all of this and detail every little nuance about each passage and verse that we'll be looking at. But what I hope you see is the need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17.11, where they're described as receiving the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And since we have community groups this week, a brief rabbit trail. That verse has also been misunderstood by well-meaning believers, I think. I used to think that it meant that they examined scripture privately to see if what was being taught was the truth. That's not it. First, they didn't have a Bible. 
They had the Old Testament, and that was found mostly in synagogues, so they couldn't just hear a teaching, go home and flip through and find it and see if that's what it meant. What this verse is saying is that a major way we learn truth from God's word is together, corporately. The Bereans got together, examined the scripture daily, and discussed it together. Sounds kind of like our community groups, plug, plug. The addresses are in the bottom of your bulletin page. Um, in other words, we need to be doing this together. Junius said that there are two purposes to scripture. The main one is the revelation of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The other is for God's glory in the church through righteousness for the benefit of the church. In other words, you aren't being like the Bereans if you're just examining scripture on your own, although that is necessary. And rabbit trail over. So the way this is going to work is I'll deal with each verse. I'll deal with what the common meaning is, the out-of-context part of it and then deal with what the context actually means. And I'll do more in depth with some than others. So again, whenever I preach, I want you to think about and ask yourself two things. What is God showing you and what are you going to do about it? Please pray with me. Father God, thank you that you are God and that we are not. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for still allowing us the freedom at this point to gather together as brothers and sisters. Lord, we confess that at times we don't have the proper reverence for the word that you have given us. Scripture is how you chose to reveal yourself and show us who you are, and, and we too often neglect or ignore it. We know the word superficially and not in-depth at a truly heart level like we are called to have. This morning, right now, Father, I pray that you will lead us to repentance and allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to give us the proper attitude and desire to really know you through your word. Draw us closer to you this morning. Be glorified by everything that I do and say. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, I'm going to be jumping around a bit um, in no particular order, really. And I do want to make the point that although these verses can and are sometimes used and abused, they, like all of Scripture, still show us something that we need to know about God. After all, the word is his revelation to us, all of it. So I want to start with one that we heard a lot over the past few years, and I'm afraid we're going to be hearing a lot in the coming months. I use the Legacy Standard Bible, but that's just a personal preference. You can use the inferior translations if you would like. That was for Mike. <laughs> Kidding, it's a joke. Starting with Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. How many of you heard that or read that starting around the beginning of 2020 when the COVID hysteria happened? And still, in some instances. Businesses started closing. The problem was that churches started closing as well. And I can almost understand right at the beginning when the situation was not as much known about it. But that didn't last long. Facts came out fairly quickly. It was not about the virus, it was about control. And you saw that because liquor stores and Walmart was deemed essential, churches weren't. And that shows you all you needed to know about all of this. So some churches started to reopen and that's when the chorus of, but Romans 13 really started. The implication being that government is put in place by God and when government says to do something, believers do it. That on its face is ridiculous. 
History is littered with mass murdering dictators doing anything they want as the church either willfully went along or sat on the sidelines silently. Humanity since the beginning of time has kicked against the goads of authority. We don't like it. We don't want to be under it. We want to live our lives our way. Well, that's what got us into the mess that we're in. God is a God of order. He is sovereign in control of every situation. And government does have a purpose. The immediate context of this verse, 13.1, is found by putting it with chapter 12. Again, chapter designations were a recent thing. In chapter 12, Paul is telling believers how to deal with other believers and also with those outside of the faith in society. And here he picks up dealing with the authority of the government. And those things, the secular and the sacred, can't be separated. And Paul doesn't separate them. To Paul, your faith has to affect every aspect of your life. You can't act one way with believers and another way with unbelievers. So yes, God has placed government over us for his purpose. That purpose may be for our benefit or for our judgment. And I fully believe we are in an extended period of God using the government for judgment on this nation and have been for the past several presidential cycles. But what we need to see here is that, yes, Christians have a duty to obey the government. That is not unconditional. First, we see in verse 1, government is from God and appointed by God. Those are important to notice and to remember. Good and proper government is government that knows its role, and that role is not that of God. The problem is that because government is full of unredeemed and unrepentant sinners, the proper role tends to change to something like government is God. And that's where the problems arise and where Christians are called to disobedience. That's important to note that just because you don't like something the government is doing, that may not be a proper reason for disobedience. Morally neutral things that the government does fall under the proper use of government. But as we saw starting in 2020, there are things that the government does that are against God's laws. Churches were told to close down so people wouldn't get sick. Never mind that that's living a life of fear, because life is inherently risky. It also means that churches were violating the command of God to gather together as believers. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And streaming a service is not assembling together. That should not be the main way you attend church, unless there is something providentially hindering you, but that shouldn't be the norm. We're called to obey government until obedience to the government means disobedience to God or our Christian consciences. I should say and our Christian consciences. And that's something we're seeing more of here in this country specifically, whether it's a government saying that speaking honestly about sin is now hate speech forcing people to recognize, which means celebrate the mentally ill rainbow mafia or justifying abortion, you can probably name your own. Government is not on the same plane as God. It's not God as one, government as one A. When government knows its role, it is doing what God ordained it to do. When it doesn't, it is acting as the enemy of God, and that's where we must stand firm. God can't be first on some arbitrary list that we have. God first, family second, on down. That means the list can be rearranged, really. 
God must be the center of the wheel of our life. If God's place is out of alignment, if we aren't following him properly, then the rest of our life, the wheel, will be out of kilter. So as I said, the context of this section of a verse comes, comes from is very important, but just as important is the context of the entirety of Scripture. God's word does not contradict itself. And we see throughout Scripture what disobedience was expected. It wasn't just an option. Daniel 3, which is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar made a golden idol of himself, commanded all of his subjects to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up, as it says in verse 5. What did the three do? They didn't bow, and they didn't worship the idol. The king calls them in to give them another chance. Music plays. They're expected to bow and worship or be thrown into the fire. Nope. Daniel 3, 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to respond to you with an answer concerning this matter. In other words, we don't need to justify why we're doing what we're doing. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to save us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will save us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods, and we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. And notice something important here. They believe God would save them from the fire. That's true. But verse 18 is huge. But if not... In other words, God may or may not save them from the pain, but they were going to obey God anyway. That's the attitude we need in this time that we're in. When we obey, things may not turn out great for us in this life. That's another verse out of context that we'll deal with in a bit. But we are called to obey anyway. Same book, Daniel 6, shows that King Darius's men wanted to trap Daniel, so they got the king to sign an order making it a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who seeks to make a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den, it says in verse 7. What does Daniel do? Daniel 6.10. Now, when Daniel knew that the written document was signed, he did not do this. He did this knowing full well what the law was. When Daniel knew that the written document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. God over government. And one more example, Acts 5. Peter and the apostles told by the high priest, the government, to stop preaching the word of God. They were arrested, jailed, freed by an angel, went right back to preaching, arrested again. Verses 27 and 29. And when they had brought them, the apostles... They stood them before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly commanded you not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. That, my friends, should be our motto as believers. That's the only explanation that anybody deserves and needs. We must obey God rather than men. God over government. We are called to submit to earthly authorities when they are in their proper role. But when they overstep and we are called to do things that go against God or our Christian consciences, his word, his commandments, it's not a matter of if we should disobey. It's a matter of we must disobey. So when you hear Romans 13 being thrown around to make sure you're submitting to the government, really pay attention because the lost love to use it out of context. And it is coming again, so get ready. 
that means we need to know what God commands and what things go against his commands as far as government and citizenship goes. That means read the word, study the word, live out the word. That's what we're called to do, no matter what the government or others say. I want to stay for a second in Romans for the next one. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. First problem, people usually leave off the, for those who love God, and just go with, well, God will work everything out. Part of the verse. Second, that's where people usually stop when they say this verse, implying that everything is going to be fine and will work itself out. The entire verse says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who, he, who are called according to his purpose. This verse does not mean that everything will be good from our perspective. Bad things happen to believers all the time that aren't good in the temporary sense of the word. The good talked about here is from God's perspective. He knows what is best for us, and sometimes that involves things that may not seem good from our point of view. We also have to recognize that some things that happen in our lives or the lives of others are just because of evil which is not of God. God doesn't cause evil things to happen. That's a consequence of the fallen world we live in, sinfulness, and sometimes our own choices. We also need to understand this verse doesn't necessarily mean that everything will work out in this lifetime. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but if not. A really important point to understand with this verse is the same point that we need to understand with the rest of Scripture. It is not written for the lost. Yes, we see God's plan of redemption for the lost, but it is written to and for believers. That is a huge point. More than anything, this verse, when we use it wrong, may give false comfort to unbelievers because this promise is not for them. What this verse shows is that God is in control and uses whatever circumstances happen in our lives for his purposes. And what is his ultimate purpose? We see that in the following verses, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This chapter starts with verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are truly saved and have repented and placed your faith and trust in the finished work of the cross, you are saved to the end. That's something to celebrate. And as Paul always does, he points to eternity and glory. That's the underlying point of verse 28. And I deal with this verse immediately after Romans 13 because of 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we live out our faith in Christ and strive to live holy lives, we will suffer. It's not an option. That's not a possibility. That is a sure thing. That's a promise. But Paul says what happens now is nothing when we reach glory and are eternally in the presence of God, which brings us back to verse 28. If you love God or a believer, everything works together for good for his purpose. For who? For those who are called from before there was time. Those who were predestined to receive the gifts of repentance and faith. For what purpose? 
Verse 29 says, to become conformed to the image of his son. That's the point of verse 28 for the believer. Again, not a feel-better verse for the lost. All we go through, all that happens, is for the purpose of growing us into Christ-likeness and for God's glory. If you're using 828, never leave out for those who love God. That's who the verse is a promise to. And don't use this verse offhandedly. There is nothing worse than throwing this verse out immediately after a tragedy. Don't be Job's friends. I've got to pause for a second. I'll explain why. This next segue was horrible, and I couldn't figure out a way to get into the next one, so palate cleanse. College football has started. <laughs> Some of us, sorry, Van, are not happy about that. Um, but that leads to the next out-of-context verse that you usually see around sporting events and around athletes. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who gives me, through him who strengthens me. Now, this verse is usually thrown out as a you-can-do-it type of verse. And it's misunderstood as an I-can-do-anything type of verse. Again, context. When you're reading God's Word, it is always a good, a good exercise to read around a particular verse, like this one. Because there's usually contextual clues there in the immediate area. And that's true here with this one. Backing up a few verses, Philippians 4 10 through 13, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now that at last you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I learn to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, but I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This letter was most likely written in the mid-60s while Paul was in prison in Rome. Clue number one, that it's not a you-can-do-it verse. Paul wrote it from prison. So the Philippian church had sent Paul a gift for which he was grateful, but he didn't want them to think he was just some type of beggar with his hand out all the time. The main philosophy of that day was self-sufficiency. That's not how Paul lived. He knew that it wasn't about him. He wanted them to know that while he was grateful, he was also content if he didn't get the gift. And where did that contentment come from? Christ. When we have Christ, he is enough. The gift was nice, but he learned to be content in whatever circumstances he was in. He lays out a couple of things that he went through there, being without things and having them, being full and being hungry, but that's not all that he had experienced. Let's go to the second letter to the Corinthians to see a more exhaustive list. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 33. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, in beatings without number, in frequent danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. 
I have been in labor and hardship, in many sleepless nights, in starvation and thirst, often hungry, in cold, and without enough clothing. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is made to stumble without my burning concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratus, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. That is quite the list. Paul was strengthened by Christ in those seemingly impossible circumstances. Why? Because he was doing what God had called him to do. God will give you strength for whatever he is leading you to do. He will give you the strength to obey his commands and live your life for his glory. This is not a verse about giving you the ability to dunk a basketball, score a touchdown, ace a test that you have not studied for. It, like everything else, is about his glory and not our own. The problem with ripping Philippians 4.13 out of its proper context is it robs the verse of its real meaning. This verse, for the believer, is about our eternal hope in Christ. Through everything that happens, when we're living for his glory, Christ will provide whatever strength we need to accomplish the task. As Paul says elsewhere in this letter, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And too often, we fall into the trap of the world around us that more is better. And we keep striving for the next new thing. Those of us who are older, I said older, not old. Those of us who are older recognize that we've fallen victim to this mindset whenever we look back on our lives. There's a poem by a man named Jason Lehman called Present Tense that shows this mindset. Quote, it was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was now winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted." End quote. The question we need to ask as believers of ourselves is what makes us content? Is it more stuff? And if it is, just know that that won't work for very long. There's always something new and better and more powerful or whatever. And if our lives are not centered on Christ, we will be constantly on the treadmill that doesn't lead to contentment or joy. And that's exhausting. And there's something important in verse 11. Did you notice it? Verse 11, Philippians 4, verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Paul learned to be content. It wasn't his natural state, even after he was saved. He had ups and downs, highs and lows, and through all of that, Romans 8.28 became true. It all worked together for God's good, or for Paul's good, rather, and God's glory. He learned what actually mattered, but that did not happen immediately and quickly. He didn't go through one of those things we just read in Corinthians. They didn't happen, and then all of a sudden he was content in every circumstance. 
But when he focused on what mattered, when he focused on Christ, as the author of Hebrews writes in 12.2, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand, right hand of the throne of God. Then Paul began to really learn that Christ was enough. That's the root of Philippians 4.13. It's not about accomplishing anything we want to do. Paul is saying he can do all of this, as it's translated in the NIV, referring to the previous verses there. He can be content in want or plenty, in hunger or full, in any circumstances because of the fact that he is in Christ. That's where he gets his strength and his commitment, contentment. And Paul is not some ultra-Christian that is so far beyond us. He is in Christ as we are in Christ, if you've repented and placed your faith in him. When we are content in Christ alone, we are more willing and able to do all the things we are called to do for his glory. That's what Philippians 4.13 actually means. So I want to jump back to what we call the Old Testament for this next one. This is one you hear and see a lot around graduation time. Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for peace and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Sweet. I graduate and get this little gem of an inspirational thought. Oh yeah, context. Yes, God knows in his sovereignty what will happen. But notice this verse says that he has a plan for peace and not for calamity. And that's sadly not always the case with us. Pastor Nate Pickowitz said, quote, Dear Christian, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And his plan includes a truckload of suffering for the purpose of disciplining you for godliness. Less pithy on a graduation card, I guess, but more true. But beyond that truth, we need to see the context of this verse from Jeremiah by seeing who it's written to. As a pastor once said, you are not David, and you are also not Israel. And that's who this promise is for. 29.3, the letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the king of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah... Wait, did I read the right verse? 29.3? No. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 4. Sorry, verse 4. I mistyped. Reading ourselves into the text of Scripture can sometimes show the selfishness selfishness with which we treat God's word. But this is written to Israel. The chosen people are in exile. They're refugees. They're in a land that is not their home because of their disobedience to God. But even here in their punishment, God is leading them and instructing them. They aren't to mope about their situation. They are to adapt and to fit in and do their best to succeed. But there is universal application in their situation for us. We are alien strangers, sojourners in a land that is not our home. We are longing for our true home as his children that we know is coming. But while we are here, we are to do our best to thrive and to get along without, as we discussed earlier, without disobeying God. We see in the previous verses in Jeremiah 29, they're called to build houses, to grow crops, get married, have kids. There's also a somewhat surprising command here for them in verse 7. They're told to work for the success of the land they're in and to pray for it. For what reason? For their future deliverance. 
God has already told them that the time of exile would be short. Babylon would fall and then his people would return to the land. But pay attention here. They're, they're being punished, but it's also for their restoration. Romans 8.28 again. Not good, but God works it for his good and glory. So while not written to us, we need to understand and to see God's good and perfect will and design here. F.B. Huey said in his commentary on Jeremiah, he said, quote, The Lord assured the people that what had happened was not a series of unplanned accidental events. He said, I know the plans. His plan was not intended to hurt them, but to give them hope and a future. He encouraged them to pray for he would listen to them, end quote. No, this was not written to us. This is not a promise to us. But as with the rest of Scripture, we see who God is here and how he deals with his children. This is Philippians 4.13 in its proper context. We're in a fallen world in a land under God's judgment. And it's getting worse. And God never promised that our lives would be easy. We are promised persecution and oppression for being his children. But through all of that, we recognize that these are God's plans. He is in charge. He is the one who gives us strength to live our lives for his glory and to do our best with the situation we have, as he directed the exiles to do. Trust God and remember that he is enough. And we don't focus on the plans that God has for us. We focus on the fact that they are God's plans. He is in control. If he knew what would happen with Israel, he knows what will happen with you. Trust him in everything. But Jeremiah 29.11 is a promise specifically giving, given to Israel, not your graduating relative. So the next one I want to deal with quickly is what you hear in small gatherings or among a few friends. It's Matthew 18.20. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Isn't that encouraging to know that Jesus is in the midst of two or three people gathered together in his name? But what about when I'm alone and praying? Is Jesus not there? Do I have to phone a friend and get them to come over so that Jesus will be with us? No, clearly no. Again, context. This is a major teaching section by Jesus. We see in the first verse of the chapter, Jesus shows what it means to be a Christian, comparing believers to little children. The rest of the chapter deals with how to relate to each other as his children within the church and that's where the section with verse 20 comes in we've seen through this chapter that we are to protect each other to love each other and in this section to forgive and restore each other this passage is the verse that deals with church discipline probably the reason most people misuse the verse out of context church discipline is the third rail in too many churches It's not talked about, much less practice. It's viewed as unloving, uncaring, and judgmental. You know, do not judge. When it's really the opposite. Mark Dever wrote in a book um, called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, quote, Imagine this church. It It is huge and still growing numerically. People like it. The music is good. The people are welcoming. There are many exciting programs, and people are quickly enlisted into their support. And yet the church, in trying to look like the world in order to win the world, has done a better job than it may have intended. It does not display the distinctively holy characteristics taught in the New Testament. Imagine such an apparently vigorous church being truly spiritually sick, with no remaining immune system to check and guard against wrong teaching or wrong living. Imagine Christians knee-deep in recovery groups and sermons on brokenness and grace, 
being comforted in their sin, but never confronted. Imagine those people made in the image of God being lost to sin because no one corrects them. Can you imagine such a church? Apart from the size, have I not described many of our American churches? End quote. Which brings us to verse 20 in its proper context. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as Gentile and the tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Another out of context that I'm not going to deal with. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, another one, that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So the goal here of all of this is nothing short of restoration. We confront because we want to restore the person to faithfulness, and Jesus gives us the steps here. If you see or know a brother or sister is living a life of sin, first go to them alone and discuss it. That doesn't work. Take one or more with you to confront him or her. Do the math. If you go with one or two, how many does that make? Two or three, which is what verse 20 is talking about. It's not a general statement that you have to have two or three gathered together or Jesus isn't bothering to show up. Matthew 28, 20, the end of it. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If you are his child, he is always with you, in groups or alone. That's a promise. So clearly verse 20 can't mean what it's taken to mean too often. What this verse is saying in proper context is that when we do the hard work of church discipline, when we follow the proper biblical guidelines here, we can be assured that Jesus is in the midst of that discussion in an especially strong way. Again, hearkening back to Philippians 4.13. When we're doing the tough things for God's glory, including calling out another believer in their sin, he will give us the strength needed to do that work. And we need to see this entire section in the proper context of the entire chapter as well. It's surrounded by teacher, teachings rooted in love and kindness. Jesus had described his followers as children, little ones, sheep, and brothers, and told how to care and love each other care for and love each other. And that didn't stop with verse 15. We're to love and care for each other, and sometimes that means loving confrontation over sin. So don't take 1820 lightly and misuse it to comfort a small gathering of believers. That mocks the truth that Jesus is always with his children, and it also mocks the real meaning in the context of the difficult church discipline. And the proper understanding helps us see the high value Christ places on the holiness of his people in his church. It is because of that value that he gives us his authority to discipline correctly when necessary. The next one comes from the book of Revelations. That one was for Colleen, if she even heard it. Revelations 1. The book of Revelation 1. This is uh, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. 
Now this one is usually heard at revivals or during evangelistic outreach things. The sad implication is that Jesus is just standing outside the hearts of unbelievers, unable to do anything without their consent, powerless and weak, but waiting. I ain't the Jesus of the Bible. And that's not what this verse means. This verse comes from a large section of letters that Jesus has dictated to the various churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This verse is specifically directed at the church of Laodicea. This verse is written to a church, and not a good one. Revelation 3, 14 to 22, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, this is what the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be manifested. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like the rest of Scripture, as I said, this is not written to unbelievers. This is specifically written to a church. This is a church that was neither hot nor cold, but was just lukewarm. The lukewarm church, the lukewarm believer, is marked by complacency and comfort. They think they're fine as they coast along in this life. This is a church that was judging its faithfulness by what it had gathered for itself. They were wealthy. That wasn't enough for Christ. We talked about Paul and his contentment already, and that's what they were lacking. They were striving for more, and they weren't relying on Christ. They were trusting in themselves and their stuff and not in Christ. He tells them what they need to do, similar to what he tells the church in Ephesus, and that's to remember and come back to their first love. We see in verse 19, similar to the last verses we looked at, Jesus reproves and disciplines those that he loves, and he calls for repentance. Several places in Scripture have doors standing in as a metaphor for the approaching coming of Christ, and that's what we see here. This church got no praise from its Lord, but it did get an invitation to act before it was too late. But notice where Christ is in this letter. He is outside of the church. They weren't faithful. They weren't following. Verse 20 is not an invitation to become a believer. It is a call to the wayward church to be restored through repentance. But also notice that while it is a call to a church, Jesus says that if anyone in the church hears him and repents, he will come in and dine with him. In other words, it just takes one faithful soul to bring about rebirth and restoration in a wayward church. Your faithfulness and your holiness ripple through the church, affecting those believers that are there. And remember that as you live your life. Your holiness isn't just about you. And this verse isn't about unbelievers. It's not an invitation to be saved. So now I want to wrap up 
with the granddaddy of all out-of-context verses, in my view. Any guesses? My community group, don't answer because you already know. What do we think it is? I was going to. No, not that one. So like I said, could have been a long series. John 3.16 is a good one. Matthew 7.1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. The one verse that every believer, every unbeliever knows and is willing to throw around. I love what Paul Washer said about this verse. Quote, people tell me, judge not lest ye be judged. I always tell them, twist not scripture lest ye be like Satan. The problem is too many believers have fallen victim to the judge not narrative and fully believe that it means we aren't to judge anything or anyone at any time. That's not the case at all. So this verse comes near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the crux of that sermon is really found in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus speaking, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus did not come to get rid of the law, the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. In other words, here in this sermon, he's showing how a life lived following him can't be unhitched from the Old Testament, as a pagan pastor has said. But it's about more than outward commandment keeping. Following Christ is about living a life with a heart made alive by and to God. That's the bulk of what this sermon is telling them and us. He lays out what is expected of his followers. He's speaking to the masses, but this is also aimed directly at the Pharisees. They're the ones who are living according to the law, at least outwardly. But they were lost like the rest of those in the audience. When this verse gets thrown around by unbelievers, it is always about something related to a Christian belief or behavior. I can complain about Bryce Harper's swing all I want. No one is going to say, judge not, because it doesn't matter. What it is said is about things like it's clear that the Rainbow Mafia are abusing naive children and causing them to go against God's perfect design. That's when the anti-judges are out in force, you know, judging. The main argument at the root of this verse and the misuse of it is the belief that anyone can live any way they want and there should be no consequences unless you happen to be a Christian. So first, in the proper context of this verse, this is not a verse that deals with unbelievers at all. Clearly, in sharing the gospel with others, we have to judge their lives so we can call them to repentance. That's not here, though. We are to judge because we are the only ones who can judge rightly or as close as humans can. But in reality, this verse is less about judging others and more about properly judging ourselves. Jesus first says, do not judge. Why? So that you will not be judged. Okay, so I can't judge because I don't want to be judged. Except there's more. He goes on to tell you how to judge. So let's read the rest of the passage, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is telling them and us not to judge wrongly and don't judge condemningly. 
Remember, this is written about how to deal with each other as believers. So we saw in Matthew 18, that includes necessarily judging, but for the purpose of restoration. We are never called, in fact, we are forbidden from overlooking the sin of our brothers and sisters in Christ. At the same time, we are not to be as the Pharisees were, which is hypocrites, living one way, doing another, saying another. And remember that this sermon is dealing with the heart of the true believer. It is not enough to outwardly obey his commands. It's about a proper heart which longs to obey him out of love. Verse 2 tells us we need to judge rightly. Jesus says that we will be judged by whatever standard we use to judge others. And we're not to be hypocritical, pointing out other people's sins and not dealing with our own. Verse 3 says we can't judge someone's tiny speck, dust particle, small thing, of sin while we have a log in our own eye. I'm sure we've all known people who love to point out all the little minute wrongs in people's lives. That's wrong, but also wrong is we are not supposed to minimize holiness in the lives of believers either. We just have to properly judge, and we can't do that with a figurative log in our own eye. The plank has to come out before we have any hope of seeing the tiny speck in our sister or brother's eye. That's the purpose of removing it from our own. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We are called throughout scripture to holiness. We are called to kill the sin that is in our lives. And the reason for that is twofold. First, if I kill the sin in my life, I can move towards sanctification at a more rapid pace, growing in Christ-likeness. We need to examine ourselves in light of God's word to see if we have allowed sin to gain hold or to be ignored in our lives. And that's a tough thing, but it's something we must do. The second reason is so that we can properly judge others' lives, not with a spirit of condemnation or criticism, but as a call to holiness. We are to judge each other in a spirit of humility, love, and grace. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, even if you, anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And understand that a life lived striving after God's holiness will look judgmental to the lost world. So what? We do not live our lives for them. We live our lives for God's glory. Like I said, I didn't even get all the ones I wanted to get to. No least of these from Matthew, abused by politicians a lot. No, if you confess with your mouth, then believe in your heart, used by easy believers. No, be still and know that I am God, used by greeting cards and calendars. None of the prosperity gospel favorites, no widow's, widow's might story from Mark 12, used to guilt people into giving more. That's just a few. Like I said, this could have been a long series. But I think the main thing I want you to take us to take away from what we've been talking about is that the Bible is not to be used recklessly or frivolously. God's word is serious, and we need to treat it that way. And when we don't, when we take verses or stories out of context and twist them to make them mean something that they don't, that's a problem. And it's an insult to the word of God, and it's an insult to God himself. I want to quickly read a few ways that the word of God describes itself. It is God breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. It will not pass away, Matthew 24.35. It will not return empty without accomplishing what is pleasing to God. Isaiah 55:11. it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4:12. 12. 
Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119, 105. It is perfect, restoring the soul. It's sure, making the wise simple. It's right, rejoicing the heart. It's pure, enlightening the eyes, Psalm 27 through 8. And it is truth, John 17, 17. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, so what? If we do not rightly understand all that the word of God is, we won't have the proper reverence for it and we'll view it or read it superficially. We'll do the Bible roulette thing when we sit down and just go, no. This is the very revelation of God given to us by God himself. As Vadi Bakum and others point, point out, the Bible is made up of 66 separate books written in three different languages on three different continents by more than 40 different writers, most of whom never met each other, written over the course of 1,500 years, historically accurate, scientifically accurate, encompassing eyewitness accounts. All of those things, and it tells one unified story. Impossible if it's not the truth. It's God's story. That is why we trust the Bible. That is why we study the Bible. It is not just a book made up by a man like the Quran or the Book of Mormon. It is authored by men under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Fully accurate, fully faithful, fully reliable, and fully the Word of God. Without contradiction, without error, fully sufficient for all of life. And James calls us to not just hear the word, but to do what the word commands. And the only way that happens is through the Holy Spirit applying what we see in the word. If we're not in the word regularly and seriously, he can't apply it. My challenge to you and to me is to make reading his word a priority in our lives. Carve out time because that's why he gave it to us. He gave it to us to show who he is, the perfect holy God, who we are, sinners under the wrath of God. And show us the plan of redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And how to live our lives in light of that and surrender to him. We don't learn who God is and what he expects by reading books about God. We learn who he is by reading the book that is written by God. And when we're doing that properly, when we know his word in his heart, then when out of context or abused scripture shows up, we will know how to respond properly with the truth of his word. So what is God showing you and what are you going to do about it? Please pray with me. Father, thank you again that you are God and that we are not. Father, thank you again for your word. Give us a heart that longs to know you and your word. Give us a desire to set aside earthly things and learn to love you completely as you have called your children to do. Help us strive after holiness. Help us love each other and you with everything we do and everything we are. Thank you again for this morning. Thank you for your word. I pray that our worship was acceptable to you. And as we leave here, help us step out of our comfort zones and do something dangerous and uncomfortable for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It's by grace through faith that ye are saved. A faith that's not your own not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God, the gift of God to you.